When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to The Ancient World. Episode 10, Picking Up the Pieces. So, where were we? Oh yeah, everything had gone to hell. Well, okay, that isn't entirely true. As I mentioned last time, the collapse of the international system of the Near East, and of the large states that comprised it, opened up political space for the cultures of Canaan to develop and thrive, at least for a time. I wanted to start this episode by taking a close-up look at this region as it dealt with the immediate aftermath of the Bronze Age collapse and made its way tentatively into the first millennium BC. As we discussed previously, the small kingdoms of Canaan had a long history of being dominated by the major regional powers, mainly Hadi, Egypt, Mitanni, and Assyria. But despite all the powerful foreign influences, Canaan, or Syro-Palestine, essentially the coastal plains of the Levant and northern Syria, managed to develop and maintain a distinct culture and identity all its own. The Canaanites worshipped their own gods, the storm god Baal chief among them, and had their own creation myths, their own literature, even their own languages and scripts, mainly used for local affairs while Babylonian cuneiform continued to dominate international affairs. After the ravages of the Sea Peoples, it was left mainly to one Canaanite people to carry on the cultural, literary, and religious traditions previously associated with the entire region. These were the inhabitants of the major northern port cities of Byblos, Sidon, and Tyre, who occupied the best natural harbors of the eastern Mediterranean and had somehow managed to survive the whole tumultuous period relatively unscathed. It's therefore at this time that we stop talking about Canaanite culture and start calling the culture by the name later bestowed upon it by its Greek rivals, Phoenician. The Phoenician port cities existed as independent city-states under hereditary kings, each acting as an independent political unit, often in conflict with one another, but also sometimes collaborating in leagues or alliances. The key to Phoenician political power, maybe even Phoenician existence, was their unrivaled mastery of the sea. We previously discussed the important role that the exchange of luxury goods played in the international system of the late Bronze Age Near East. While some of these goods could be obtained locally, 
For others, it was necessary to voyage to and trade with the far-flung lands across the Mediterranean. Of the major powers of the day, both the landlocked Assyrians and the Nile-dwelling Egyptians were alike in their absolute fear and discomfort with the idea of sailing beyond the sight of shore, to enter the mysterious world that the Egyptians called the Great Green. They needed someone to fulfill this vital role of obtaining critical raw materials and luxury goods from all parts of the Mediterranean and transporting them to the Near East. The Phoenicians, whom the Assyrians called the people whose borders are in the midst of the seas, were ideally suited for this role. Phoenician interest in maritime trade began as early as the 3rd millennium BC, when Egyptian seafaring expeditions were dispatched to the city of Byblos to obtain wood from the cedar forests of the Levant, known and valued from at least as far back as ancient Sumerian times. Inspired by this early interaction, Phoenician craftsmen began to build ships with deep, curved hulls capable of plying the open seas, similar to those used by their contemporaries, the Minoans. Over time, the growing merchant fleets of the powerful Canaanite port cities established outposts and trade routes covering the entire eastern Mediterranean. By the time the great kingdoms of the Near East arose, these cities were well positioned to meet their ever-increasing demands for critical raw materials and exotic trade goods. Plugged in as deeply as they were, it might be expected that the collapse of the international system would have a severely damaging effect on the economies, if not the whole raison d'etre, of the Phoenicians. In fact, the opposite occurred. In many ways, it ushered in a new golden age. How did this happen? Well, let's take a look at the aftermath of the Bronze Age collapse from the Phoenician perspective. Their international rivals in Eastern Mediterranean trade, the Mycenaean Greeks, were suddenly gone, as were most of the other rival Canaanite port cities along the coast. After centuries of being pushed around by the Hittites and the Egyptians, Hatti was reduced to an assortment of minor Neo-Hittite successor kingdoms, and Egypt was withdrawn, diminished, and under-divided rule. While neither could exert any power over the Levant, both still wanted to pretend that they were still living in the good old days, which included an ongoing appetite for luxury goods from overseas. In this, they were joined by the new Hebrew and Aramean states that had formed in the region. The Phoenicians were more than happy to supply all of these lucrative markets. Free from the domination of outside powers and with profit now their sole motive, Phoenician merchants quickly moved to occupy the eastern Mediterranean and Aegean trade routes abandoned by rivals lost to the regional collapse. In these endeavors, they were supported, both politically and financially, by local rulers. The lines between Phoenician politics and commerce, never very sharp, soon became even more intertwined, with powerful merchant families forming councils of elders to advise the Phoenician kings. In addition to their role in maritime trade, the Phoenicians were also renowned for their expertise in the manufacture of finely crafted luxury goods. Raw materials obtained from overseas were processed in local workshops, mostly for foreign consumption. The Phoenician trade in luxuriously embroidered garments colored with a deep purple dye from Tyre, the product of the murex shellfish, may be the source of their name, as phoenix means purple in ancient Greek. 
The Phoenicians were also the first state-level society to make extensive use of an alphabet. Several alphabetic scripts, basically scripts using a single symbol for each consonant, emerged in Syro-Palestine during the second millennium BC. These alphabets may have taken their initial inspiration from Egyptian hieroglyphics, which also include symbols for single consonants. The main advantage of alphabetic scripts is the greatly reduced number of symbols requiring memorization, often only a few dozen. This aspect took writing out of the rarefied realm of highly trained court scribes and made it into a tool that anyone could use. One of the best-known early alphabetic scripts was that used by the Canaanite city of Ugarit in the 13th century BC. The script, rendered in cuneiform in the Ugaritic language, is still preserved on some 1400 baked clay tablets. Unfortunately, neither the script nor the city survived the ravages of the Sea Peoples. However, the Phoenicians adopted the linear alphabet and developed it during the first millennium BC to write in the Semitic languages of Syro-Palestine. The Phoenician alphabet is generally believed to be the ancestor of almost all modern alphabets, although it did not contain vowels, which were added later by the Greeks. Along with the alphabet, the first millennium BC is notable for one other major technological advancement that had a huge impact on all the regional players, the advent of the Iron Age. Previously, the strongest tools and weapons had been made of bronze, an alloy of copper and tin, which were relatively scarce and therefore expensive. Only large and wealthy kingdoms could afford to equip entire armies with bronze helmets, swords, and spears, and the raw materials often had to be obtained via complex long-distance trade networks. Compared with tin, iron ore was relatively plentiful, and once smiths mastered the art of working it, probably first in Anatolia around 1500 BC, iron weapons with a harder edge than their bronze counterparts became widely available. In the 12th and 11th centuries BC, Iron was alloyed with charcoal to make steel, leading to even more effective weapons. This development gave small kingdoms founded at the time at least a fighting chance to establish themselves. In the end, however, the Iron Age didn't alter the most basic rule of warfare. The military advantage always resided with whichever party was able to field a huge army, an inexorable logic that will eventually impact most of our regional players. In the 10th century BC, the Phoenician city of Tyre was ascendant, under the leadership of the energetic kings Abibaal and his son and heir Hiram I. The information we have on Hiram comes primarily from the Hebrew Bible, but his existence and actions are also independently testified to by the 2nd century BC Greek historian Menander of Ephesus. In fact, reconstructing early Phoenician history is a bit of a challenge, since they used perishable papyrus for their records, and their major cities have been continuously inhabited down to this day, limiting the potential for archaeological excavation. Hiram, whose 34-year reign began in 980 BC, ushered in a number of significant changes to Phoenician society. In an effort to undercut the power and wealth of the traditional priesthood of Baal, and haven't we heard that story before? He promoted the worship of the Tyrian city god Melkart and his consort Astarte. 
Hiram may have even gone so far as to demolish the temples of the old gods while constructing new temples to the pair. Along with being credited for founding Tyre, the god Melkart had also legendarily provided the city with its first boat, making Melkart worship a nice fit with the increasing trade and colonization promoted under Hiram. Formerly a vassal of Sidon, Tyre soon came to dominate its sister city, and this new dual-city axis laid much of the groundwork for what became considered a distinctly Phoenician, as opposed to Canaanite, identity. To further establish Tyre's dominance among the Phoenician port cities, Hiram next moved to secure an alliance with a new and rising power to the south, the Kingdom of Israel. To the extent we can rely on the historicity of the Bible, Israel presents us with a rare, detailed account of the formation of a small state. Of course, that's a fairly big qualifier. In the format known to us, the books of the Bible were composed in the period after the Babylonian exile, in the late 6th century BC, certainly based on earlier materials and the archaeological record often either doesn't serve to substantiate or even directly contradicts the biblical account. What we do know is that the Hebrews were a nomadic desert tribe, or set of twelve tribes, who entered the land of Canaan sometime in the 13th century BC. In this, they were similar to the Aramean and Chaldean tribes who migrated into Syria and Babylonia, respectively, at around the same time. Biblical sources, notably the book of Joshua, discuss the Hebrews' military conquest of the region, which is fairly well aligned with the general storyline of the Bronze Age collapse. However, based on archaeological evidence, it's just as likely that the Hebrews either migrated into the area peacefully, or were even possibly an indigenous Canaanite people. During the late Bronze Age, settlement in Canaan was concentrated in the coastal plain and along major trade routes. The central and northern hill country, which would later become the biblical kingdom of Israel, was only sparsely inhabited. However, Egyptian correspondence indicates that by this time, Jerusalem was already an established Canaanite city-state under Egyptian rule. Politically and culturally, the whole region was dominated by Egypt with each city under its own ruler, constantly at odds with its neighbors, and frequently appealing to the Egyptians to settle their differences. The name Israel first appears on a stele of the Egyptian pharaoh Merneptah in the late 13th century BC. Israel is laid waste and his seed is not. This Israel was a cultural and political entity in the central highlands of Canaan, well enough established to be perceived by the Egyptians as a possible challenge to their dominance of the region, but as an ethnic group rather than an organized state. The Late Bronze Age saw a large increase in both the number of villages and the settled population in the Canaanite highlands, with the villages larger and more numerous in the north. Unusually favorable climatic conditions after 1000 BC brought about an expansion of population, settlements, and trade throughout the region. In the central highlands, this resulted in the formation of a kingdom called Israel, with the city of Samaria as its capital, possibly in the second half of the 10th century BC, when it apparently came into conflict with the Egyptian pharaoh Shoshank I, the biblical Shishak. The kingdom of Judah, centered on Jerusalem, was probably founded sometime during the 9th century BC. 
Both kingdoms had separate yet closely related histories. The biblical text suggests that the northern kingdom of Israel was in close contact with other neighboring Canaanite kingdoms, and Canaanite cultural traditions, including the worship of the gods Baal and El, were prevalent within its territories. These factors suggest that the kingdom of Israel may have existed in some form prior to the Bronze Age collapse. It had several ruling dynasties, the House of Omri foremost among them, between its foundation and its eventual conquest by Assyria in the late 8th century BC. The southern kingdom of Judah, smaller and weaker than Israel, was apparently ruled by a single dynasty, identified in a late 9th century Aramaic inscription as the House of David, from its foundation until its annexation by Babylon in the early 6th century BC. According to the biblical account, a unified kingdom of Israel emerged around 1000 BC under three celebrated rulers, Saul, David, and Solomon. Before we go on, it should be mentioned that there is currently no conclusive archaeological evidence for the existence of Saul, David, Solomon, or of a unified Israelite kingdom incorporating both Israel and Judah. The formation of such a large unified kingdom would certainly be an anomaly, considering the fractious history of Syro-Palestine. Modern archaeologists tend toward the belief that there was a continuous and uninterrupted existence of two distinct cultural and political entities throughout the 10th century BC, and if there ever was a temporary political union, it had no significant impact on the relationship between the two states. With that disclaimer out of the way, let's return to the biblical account. In 1020 BC, Saul was chosen as the first Israelite king, a break with traditional Israelite tribal confederate structure, by Samuel, an Israelite judge and prophet. Increasing pressure from the Philistines and other hostile neighboring tribes was the primary motivation for the Israelites to unite into a singular state. The length of Saul's reign is disputed, but the Bible states he met his end in battle against Israel's most dangerous enemy, the Philistines. While the Phoenicians occupied the northern coast of the Levant, and the Israelites the central highlands, the Philistines occupied the southern coast of Canaan, ruling the five cities of Gaza, Ascalon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath. We mentioned previously that archaeological evidence including a locally made version of Mycenaean pottery, as well as the discovery of a Megaron-type great hall unearthed at Ekron, suggest a Hellenic origin for the Philistines. However, by around 1000 BC, Philistine culture was almost fully integrated with that of Canaan, including the worship of local deities Baal, Astarte, and Dagon. Returning to the biblical account, Saul's heir Ishbaal took over rulership of Israel, but ruled for only two years before he was assassinated. Upon his death in 1006 BC, David, son-in-law and general to Saul, and current king of Judah, was appointed king of Israel as well. Israelite rebels, convinced, probably correctly, that David was responsible for Ishbaal's assassination, disputed his right to rule over them. They appointed David's son, Absalom, as their new king, led Israelite forces south to conquer Judah, and ultimately forced David into exile east of the Jordan River. Eventually, David launched a counterattack and emerged victorious to establish kingship over both Judah and Israel, though with the loss of his son Absalom. 
Rebellions by Israel continued under his rule, but he managed to successfully repress all of them. After unifying Judah and Israel, David embarked on successful military campaigns against their common enemies, particularly the Philistines, conquered the Canaanite city of Jerusalem, and generally concentrated on establishing secure borders for his kingdom. Under David's rule, Israel grew from small kingdom to small empire, and its sphere of influence, militarily and politically, expanded to include a number of weaker client states like Philistia, Moab, Edom, and Ammon, and with two Aramean kingdoms, Aram Zobah and Aram Damascus, becoming vassal states. At the height of its power, the biblical Israel ruled over territories extending from the Mediterranean Sea to the Arabian Desert, and from the Red Sea to the Euphrates. It was King David who received the emissaries of King Hiram of Tyre, laden with precious gifts including cedar wood, and anxious to befriend this new power, who exercised control over valuable inland trade routes used by the Phoenicians. Upon David's death in 965 BC, he was succeeded by his son Solomon, who came out on top in a succession struggle with his elder brother Adonijah whom he later had killed. Under Solomon, renowned for his great wisdom and judgment, the kingdom of Israel experienced an unprecedented era of peace, and a number of prominent cities were rebuilt under a major construction program. It was also during this period that Hiram's overtures finally paid off, and Israel formally entered into a commercial agreement with the city of Tyre. For its part, Tyre supplied cedarwood and skilled craftsmen to work on two new monumental buildings in Jerusalem, a temple to the Israelite god Yahweh and a royal palace, which they also furnished with gold, silver, and bronze decorations. In exchange, Israel provided payment in silver as well as large annual provisions of wheat and olive oil, critical commodities for the port city of Tyre which controlled little productive hinterland of its own. This first treaty lasted until both buildings were completed, some 20 years later. After this, a second agreement was signed allowing Tyre to purchase 20 Canaanite cities in the Galilee and Akko Plain, an area highly valued for its agricultural production. Tyre and its ambitious King Hiram finally had the hinterland needed for a secure power base in the Levant. Other benefits secured by Hiram included privileged access to Israelite markets, as well as additional sources of funding for joint Tyrian-Israelite commercial ventures. After he died in 947 BC, his policies were continued by his dynastic successors Baal Esser and Abdestartus. Over the same period, maritime trade was also buoyed by recent Phoenician advances in the fields of navigation and ship construction including the use of the Pole Star, which permitted navigation at night, and ship designs that maximized both speed and storage capacity. All of these factors combined to poise the Phoenicians on the verge of a new golden age of commercial maritime dominance, a promise that would see fulfillment over the course of the next century. As for Israel, returning to the biblical account, Following Solomon's death, tensions between the northern territories, containing the ten northern Hebrew tribes, and the southern portion, dominated by Jerusalem and the two southern tribes, reached a boiling point. Around 930 BC, Solomon's successor, Rehoboam, was confronted with complaints of overtaxation by the northern tribes. 
Canceled by his advisors to show no weakness, Rehoboam decided to double down, telling the petitioners, Whereas my father laid upon you a heavy yoke, so shall I add tenfold thereto. Whereas my father tortured you with whips, so shall I chastise you with scorpions. For my littlest finger is thicker than my father's loins, and your backs, which bent like reeds at my father's touch, shall break like straws at my own touch. This approach worked about as well as you might expect, and as a result, the kingdom of Israel, unified for less than a century, split once again into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel, including the major cities of Shechem and Samaria, came under the rule of King Jeroboam I, a popular resistance figure who had returned from exile in Egypt upon the death of Solomon and rode the wave of public discontent to a position of leadership over the northern tribes. The southern kingdom of Judah, containing the city of Jerusalem and Solomon's temple, remained under Rehoboam. Most non-Israelite provinces also achieved independence at the same time. As a historical side note, the new Israelite capital of Shechem had earned a few previous mentions in Egyptian records. It was recorded as a Canaanite settlement as far back as the reign of Senusret III in the 19th century BC, and was also discussed in the 14th century Amarna letters as being the capital of a Habiru kingdom carved out by a notorious Canaanite warlord named Labiah. Following its brief rule as Israel's capital, the city passed into relative obscurity and was finally destroyed by the Roman Emperor Vespasian during the First Jewish-Roman War. In its place, Vespasian built the new city of Flavia Neapolis, the origin of the modern Arabic name for the city, Nablus. We'll return to the story of Israel and Judah in the context of our discussion of Egypt next episode. But our discussion of Canaan and the aftermath of the Bronze Age collapse wouldn't be complete without mention of another group of Semitic-speaking desert nomads who would put a lasting stamp on the region, the Arameans. The people of Aram are referenced as far back as the annals of the Akkadian ruler Naram-Sin, as well as in the later archives of the cities of Mari and Ugarit. Between 1200 and 900 BC, the Arameans appeared to have displaced the earlier Semitic Amorite populations of central Syria, and settled between the Tigris and Euphrates in such numbers that the region became known as Aram Naharaim, or Aram of the Two Rivers. There was also Aramean intermixing with the Neo-Hittite populations of northern Syria and south-central Anatolia, resulting in the formation of a number of small Syro-Hittite states. By the early 11th century BC, two medium-sized Aramean kingdoms, Aram Damascus and Hamath, along with several smaller kingdoms and independent city-states, had emerged in the region. Frequent conflicts between the Arameans and the neighboring Assyrians were a major factor in reducing the latter's middle kingdom, hard won under the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser I, once again to its heartland around Asher and Nineveh. According to the biblical account, during the 10th century BC, Aram-Damascus became a vassal state of Israel under the rule of King David. Aramean states were often named as the house of a noble ancestor, using the prefix bit, in an acknowledgement of their tribal background, or else were hyphenated with Aram as the prefix, such as Aram Damascus. 
Sometimes, when a particular Aramean state was dominant, it was referred to as simply Aram, even in the texts of its own Aramean neighbors. Inherited rule was a firmly established Aramean tradition, as was frequent internecine warfare, only paused when states united against a common enemy, such as the Assyrians. During other times, smaller Aramean states were often forced to form self-defensive coalitions against their larger neighbors. The Aramaeans' most important and longest-lasting contribution to the region was their language. During the 9th century BC, Aramaic began to compete with the East Semitic Akkadian language and script in both Assyria and Babylonia, and thereafter spread throughout the Near East in various dialects. From around 800 BC onward, Aramaic would become the lingua franca of the dominant empires of the region. Although marginalized by Greek during the later Hellenistic period, Aramaic and its various dialects remained unchallenged as the common language of all Near Eastern Semitic peoples until the Arab-Islamic conquest of Mesopotamia in the 7th century AD, after which it was gradually superseded by Arabic. But that's all still a bit down the road. For now, we'll leave the societies of Canaan in the waning decades of the 10th century BC if not at peace, then at least generally left to their own devices. For better or for worse, the clock is ticking on that particular arrangement. Next episode, we'll round out our picture of the Near East in the early 1st millennium BC by looking in on the other regional powers, including Egypt, Babylonia, Elam, the Neo-Hittite states, and the new proto-Armenian state of Urartu. But all of this is really just an opening act for the major player who's already warming up to take center stage. Twice now, Assyria had tasted real power only to see it all slip away again. Bitter? Oh, a tad. But from these losses, the Assyrians had distilled one hard lesson, that power could only be effectively secured and maintained through absolute, merciless military domination a lesson they would soon visit upon the diminished and fractious states of the early Iron Age Near East. Meet the Neo-Assyrian Empire, next time on The Ancient World.